Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Welcome to our first installment of the series Ecotones in the Spirit. We're pleased to be bringing you the first presentation from our keynote presenter for the week, Gary Paul Nabhan. Gary is an ecumenical Franciscan brother, an agricultural ecologist, and a pioneer in the local food movement, as well as someone who's very involved in the heirloom seed-saving movement. He's a graduate of the Living School at Richard Rohr Center for Action and Contemplation and the recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant. We'll be sharing with you his presentations to the group, as well as a one-on-one interview, and we look forward to sharing his wisdom and stories with you all. That that uh, you know the the forest district manager doesn't own it and doesn't have authority over it. He he or she should be responding to our our needs and hopes and and values about that land. We all have to take the responsibility again for being healers, not only of our own bodies and our own communities but of the land that we live in. And I think that's what the community-based ecological restoration movement is about tomorrow. You can't call yourself a restoration ecologist, get a grant, plant some trees, and at the end of your grant, write up a paper and say, the forest is restored. You know, it, a community has to take care of that, and the community has to be restored by doing the work of restoring the forest. Or, or it don't work. <laughs> so um, what I'm getting at is that um, we're all healers. And if we don't accept that gift, blessing, responsibility, the wounds win. <laughs> the wounds continue to grow. The wounds continue to deepen and bleed and ooze because we've forfeited our right and responsibility to be healers ourselves. And, and that's a pretty harsh way of saying um, something, but I think we get disempowered, and I think that's what is so wonderful to me about this crazy, heartbreaking moment in American history, that indivisible and uh, every, ethnic group, gender, and, and faith has marched on Washington to say, we want more out of our government and, and civil society than what we're getting, and we're, we're taking back our rights to it. Uh, I was talking to Nikki about um, this incredible thing that many of our friends have been involved in the last eight years of finding community consensus in southern Utah. And really, it's Ace in Arizona and Colorado on what was called Bearsers National Monument that yeah. President Obama uh, designated right before he went out of office. I had helped President Clinton with a thing called Ironwood National Monument in a coalition with indigenous peoples on both sides of the border, you know, eight years before. So I feel very committed to those kinds of actions. And the current government is trying to dismantle that. But the communities themselves said, have said, wait, we found consensus on the need 
to safeguard the sacred place for over a dozen years. And we're going ahead with a visitor center. And this stuff is still in the courts. And we're assuming that it's designated. And if the federal government isn't going to fund it, we're going to raise private funds to do exactly what we said we were going to do, and that President Clinton created through the American Antiquities Act, which is, by most legal measures, inviolable. You can't undo something designated by the American Antiquities Act. So that's what I mean by not being disempowered by what's happening now. But there's these beautiful moments all around us where people were going to say, yeah, I'm discouraged by that, but that does not disempower me, you know. And, and I think that's really what we need right now. It's kind of the Walter Brueggemann kind of faith is resistance. And it's not resistance of poking someone else in the eye. It's saying, I will not have my joy robbed from me. And all of us really, really need that. But I want to I wanna say that, that the joy also comes from doing this kind of work, that when we get it right, environmental restoration, cultural restoration or revival, like the beautiful things that I see among the Diné people with the Sheep is Life Festival and many other expressions, and restorative justice in our community, that other way we use the word restoration, all sort of come together in a seamless way with one feeding synergistically on the other and creating something greater than the sum of the parts. So that when we actually say to ourselves, I'm a healer, I, you know, we could use other words, uh, but in one of the communities where my wife and I live in Mexico, one out of every five people call themselves a medicine woman or a medicine man or shaman, they've gone through initiation. They don't use those words with the sort of stigma and new aginess that we use, but they say, I am empowered to, to psychically and physically to heal the people around me and the land around me. If, if we take that on into the seamless thing, more joy spills out of it. There's a spillover effect, because once you heal something, it goes into self-regeneration. That's what every plant out here does. Mm -hmm. You give that little plant a bit of help, and you kickstart something that goes into that self-regeneration mode, and you're a bystander after that. And that can happen in our communities. That can happen in a forest, a grassland, or uh, 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 a bed of, uh, of uh, marine algae uh, floating out in the sea that we want to be the kickstarters of that regenerative process in the world. Mm -hmm. I want to um, do another kind of parable like that one about St. Francis, but this is a, a parable from the Gospels that I think we underestimate the power of what's behind it. And it's, I, a couple of you know that I've been working off and on for about four years on a book called um, uh, Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, because I don't think we remember that more than any other audiences, Jesus spoke the parables that he did directly to the salt of the earth, 
the fishers and the farmers who were mo the most poorest classes in that community at a time in the Middle East where the Greco-Roman Empire was really impoverishing them. What that moment in time was that Jesus emerged out of was a time when um, sort of a multinational empire was using all its colonies as areas of ex extraction. And people who were everyday fishermen were all of a sudden um, told that they should take the fresh fish that they caught and usually sold in markets to make that into a fish paste called garum in, in uh, Roman, put it in barrels and sell it for about a tenth of what they could get for the fish itself to be taken all the way back to Rome or to Athens. And within the 20 year period before Jesus was born, we think that there was about a hundredfold depletion of the fish populations in the Sea of Galilee as this buildup toward the Greco-Roman Empire as an extractive force hit them. And the fishermen were the ones most damaged by this. They were all of a sudden paid to bring their boat into harbor. And what the hell are you going to do, leave your boat out in the middle of the lake all night? Because suddenly a harbor that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had used for free was all, all of a sudden taxed by the empire. You were taxed when you put your, your gear of this fish paste into barrels. When it went out on the road, on a Roman road that was paved, you were, quote, paying for the road improvements. And for the same amount of fish, they were getting less and less income. The same thing was happening with the farmers there, that all of their best wheat, and that was the cradle of wheat and barley, was going off to other places, and people were starving, even though they were farmers. Why I started to write this book is the same thing is really happening today. That, that farmers today in America have less return on their investment of any farmer since 1948 in this country. Mm -hmm. The suicide rate of farmers, men and women farmers, is higher than it's ever been, not only in the US, but worldwide. Um, and this is in particular affecting black farmers, young farmers, and faith-based farmers who, for one reason or another, aren't being given access to low interest loans and other things, so they're going in deeper and deeper in debt and can't even face their own families to tell them how much debt they're in. And so we're in a new farm crisis in the United States, and I thought reminding ourselves that Jesus's option was to talk primarily to farmers and fishers who were going through this same process of extractive imperialistic economies 2,000 years ago might be helpful. And so the parable that I want to focus on with that backdrop is the one where he's just shown up in Galilee. He wasn't from there. And everyone was suspicious of him because he was an outsider, just as if you all of a sudden graduated from this college and then bought some land in a little holler cove near here. Everyone there who'd been there for generations would say, who's that new person? He's a landscape developer, or 
they going to have a commune there? What's going to go on? Are they good pot growers? Or what the heck is going on? Why did some outsider come in? So everyone was initially suspicious of him. They'd heard that he'd been hanging around with that weird guy, John the Baptist, over on uh, uh, the Jordan. And they were intrigued but puzzled by that. And one morning after the fishermen had come in for the third or fourth night, having caught no fish at all, weary, tired, they see him on the shore and he walks out and asks Simon if he can come into the boat with him. And Simon or Simon Peter or Petros, whatever you want to call him, um, indulged him and said, you know, sir, stranger, come on into the boat with us. And then suddenly, Jesus, who's a landlubber, says, you know what, Simon? If you don't mind it, unfold uh, your nets. They just folded all the nets up and cleaned all the algae and sticks and crap out of them so they could use them the next day. Unfold your nets and let's go fish over there. Now, these guys had been fishermen all their lives. <laughs> they were from the place. They'd just given it their best shot for the last three nights, up all night from dusk till dawn. And they hadn't caught a damn thing, and a landlubber is telling them to go out to a particular place about a half mile away from them and fish. And it was below a ridge that's still known as Eremos, which may be related to the word for hermit in Greek or Roman or whatever. But below it was a place called Heptapoga, which is called Seven Springs there to this day among the Jews and the Druze that live in Galilee. Some of those springs where Jesus was directing them to were not on the hillside of that ridge, but in the water. It was a freshwater upwelling. And as they moved toward this place, Simon, who's wearier than all get out, remembered that the place that Jesus, as landlubber, was leading them to was a place that Zebedee, his elder, had said, you know, if we ever get close to starvation, there's a place, sort of a sanctuary for fish in the Galilee that we don't want to fish at other times. But if you go there, because of this freshwater upwelling and all the nutrients that come up into the water with it, there'll be an abundance of fish and only use it when you're near starvation because you can rapidly deplete it. So they go over there, throw the nets over, and all of a sudden, a tilapia known as musht uh, in, in Hebrew. It's just like jumping into the nets. That these are linen flax uh, fiber nets that were so full suddenly that they were nearly breaking with the fish. They filled up two boats full of fish, and Simon's trying to, he's so tired, he's trying to make sense of this. How could we go three nights without fishing and in 20 minutes, this landlubber takes us to this sanctuary for fish that we had forgotten about. It's in our own oral history. We should have known about it, but because they said, use it only when you're close to starvation, we just never went there. And a stranger comes up and he says, you have an abundance hidden right where you are and it's time to connect with that abundance. Mm -hmm. 
and they're humbled. How could a how could a outsider point to something in our own community, this hidden abundance, that can save us from starvation and from selling our boats and having to be indentured service? And that's why those fishermen joined Jesus' disciples. We're never told the story exactly that way. This is pieced together from me doing all kinds of stupid research on the declines in fish in the Galilee that they figured out through archaeological studies and things like that. So I'm not saying that everyone would interpret that parable in that way that's much more literate about biblical history than I am. But if we bring it back to the, the ecological connections embedded in that story, we see that it's, it's this incredible metaphor calling each of us to find that abundance mm -hmm. hidden in our own communities, in our own environment, rather than thinking we're living in a wasteland. So that's the next little writing task for you. And I just want to have you spend two to three minutes saying, what are those wellsprings of abundance in your own life, in your own place, that you haven't tapped into those sanctuaries? Um, in, in, I'll just say in my case, um, I was one of those activists that um, was so fervent about things, I kept on burning out. And I really had to be broken before I realized that I, I wasn't grounding my social justice action in contemplative practice until I understood that that was the wellspring. I didn't need a bunch of fish. I, need, I needed the, the deep, reflective stance, the contemplative <coughs> Contemplative practice is the only thing that can bring to activism to deal with my own hunger. That was the abundance in my own backyard that I wasn't tapping into. So I want you to just spend a couple minutes just doing bullet points about what that hidden abundance is in your life. And then turn to one of your neighbors or you can signal to someone now. If there's three of you sitting in one area, one of you can go over and find someone else. But I want you to do two or three minutes, sit next to that person, each of you write something up, and when you're done, talk about what that hidden wellspring, that hidden abundance in your own life may be. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to download the rest of our Ecotones of the Spirit series and to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the conversations happening around food, health, and ecological well-being. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.